If Ian Hampton's young son was any indication, audiences today were going to be just as hard to please as they ever had been. Juke bassist Hampton laughed. I got a call to ask for something to be delivered to the rehearsal room in Battersea. I don't recall what. It may have been my Fender bass. Whatever. I drove Juke's orange van up there to deliver it with my four-year-old son on board. We went down into the dungeon, and I said to my kid, Did you ever hear a rock band before? He ran out screaming. Welcome back, you Ronettes and Russellinos, to All You Ever Think About Is Sparks. This is Episode 7, where I'll be taking a look at the beginnings of Sparks 2.0 in the UK and the seeds of the monumental Kimono My House album. I'm your host, Christian Huey. Now, before I get into the calm before the storm that preceded the release of Sparks' 1974 surprise smash hit, I'm going to do an end-of-the-year wrap-up for The World in Sparks 2019. 2019 has been a huge year for Sparks fans. This year saw Ron and Russell wrap up their Hippopotamus tour with a show in Turnon, France. Please don't at me about my French pronunciation. It is terrible. I know. After that, they got to work on Annette, an original musical by Ron and Russell, which, as of this writing, is still in production as a Hollywood film to be released in 2020. In the director's helm is Leo Carax, again, pronunciation, and the film stars Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Speaking of sparks and the movies, Edgar Wright, one of my favorite directors today, is hard at work on the first ever authorized documentary about the entire career arc of sparks. That film is also set for a release sometime in 2020. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, there were two new-ish releases by Sparks this autumn. Past Tense, a two- or three-disc set uh, covering Sparks' entire musical output from 1967 to 2017. Yes, 1967, when they were Urban Renewal Project. And the 25th anniversary re-release of Gratuitous Sax and Senseless Violins, which has two bonus discs that are an embarrassment of aural riches for the hardcore Sparks adherent. But there's much more than this. Yes, French electronic producer Sebastian released his album uh, Thirst, which features a collaboration with Ron and Russell called Handcuffed to a Parking Meter. I love it. It slaps. Yes, I'm a 40-year-old man. I said slaps. If you miss the dance beats of the 90s version of Sparks, or if you're a fan of their 2015 FFS album with Franz Ferdinand, I'm pretty sure you're going to like it too. And finally, out of nowhere, on December 16th, 2019, Sparks dropped a brand new single, the elegant but elegaic Don't Fuck Up My World. It's a bold lyrical statement about the urgent state of decline our planet faces, and a children's choir, no less, even shows up to sing a verse. Here's a clip from that. Don't fuck up my world I need 
finally, in September, I started this podcast, the one you're listening to right now. It's been a pure labor of love, and I thank you all immensely for listening and supporting me. I don't make a dime off of this, of course. Um, We passed 1,000 downloads recently, and that means a lot to me. Uh, I want to wish you all and your family a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, etc., etc., and and a happy and safe New Year's. Now, after the history lesson portion of this show, I've got a great interview with James Lowe, founding member of the Electric Prunes, engineer of the first Half Nelson slash Sparks album, and producer of 1972's A Woofer and Tweeter's Clothing. James, thanks again for your time and your generosity. I'll catch all you guys in 2020. We don't all have Susie safety, so please do take good care of you and yours. And now, dance, goddammit. Before Ron and Russell Mayo pulled up their stakes and flew to England, newly minted manager for Sparks, John Hewlett, had wrested Sparks from Bearsville's contract in the U.S. Neither Albert Grossman nor Roy Silver made a peep. They firmly believed Bearsville and Sparks had outlived each other's usefulness to one another, and they sincerely wished Ron and Russell the best of luck. Hewlett went straight to work making a short list of UK labels that might be warm to taking on the quirky American band, who, by the way, consisted of only two members now. Hewlett got lucky. His first call was to David Betteridge of Island Records, who agreed to bring in AR man Muff Winwood, who then agreed to convince label head Chris Blackwell. It was a lucky thing for Ron and Russell that they weren't in the room when Winwood played tapes of Sparks for Chris Blackwell. Blackwell spent the entire impromptu listening session listing all the reasons he hated Sparks. But Muff dug the weird but rhythmic style, so out of place with the overdriven guitar rock that was all the rage that year in 1973. Most importantly, he couldn't shake Ron's looks. That did the trick, he said. They looked so weird, you just had to give it a go. The scene was reminiscent of three years previous when Todd Rungren leaned hard on Albert Grossman, beseeching Grossman to trust his instincts, that's Todd's instincts, and sign this unknown group of Los Angeles weirdos. Like Rungren, Muff Winwood had earned the trust of his superior. Blackwell made a compromise. He agreed to release 500 pounds, which is about $7,000 U.S. in 2019 money, to fly the mails over, put them up, cut a few tracks. The modest sum couldn't have engendered much confidence from Ron and Russell's perspective in terms of long-term prospects. Still, they believed it was all they needed for a foot in the door. It was a fortuitous irony that the so-called West Coast scene enjoyed a mystique in the UK and Europe that was mostly unappreciated or entirely unobserved back on the West Coast itself. Indeed, Sparks found that American bands that had only been a blip on the pop radar back home were sometimes blowing up the charts in the UK. Uh, Some examples are Nazareth, uh, Susie Quattro, Mud. Uh, Some of this was because pop music in general was just a bigger part of life across the Atlantic. Uh, Said Russell, 
That was one reason why we wanted to go to England, because at least there's some drive going on among bands. You're constantly bombarded by magazines with color band photos, and everybody's in a band, and rock and roll's just really important for kids. It's not important for everyone in L.A. If Sparks were going to be label mates with Roxy Music, whom they considered kindred spirits, maybe Island Records was the place to be. The level of Island Records' success and cultural cachet in mid-1973 was either gangbusters or middling, depending on your source. Dave Thompson, in Number One Songs in Heaven, portrays Island Records as being in desperate need for a second reliable hitmaker that wasn't Roxy Music. A few years previous, the label had boasted King Crimson, Traffic, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Mott the Hoople, but they had all either left the label or petered out. Again, according to Thompson's book, Muff Winwood believed with the right backing band and focused songwriting from Ron, Sparks could be groomed as Island's badly needed new hit factory. Alternatively, Daryl Islia in Talent is an Asset, describes a mega-successful record company that had a management team for Jamaican and other black music and a second one for wider rock acts. Having just discovered Bob Marley, Island was also reaping the benefits from promoting acts like Nick Drake, Jimmy Cliff, Cat Stevens... Both of these sources of mine, however, emphasize the belief by Muff Winwood that Sparks could and should be big. Hewlett put the Mail Brothers up in his own home, either a sign of Hewlett's personal affection for the brothers or a cost-cutting measure, and Ron and Russell were eager to put their noses to the grindstone. There was just one problem. Ron and Russell had no new songs. They even abandoned a handful of new numbers they tested at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go back in L.A. And so Ron wrote. He wrote for guitar initially because it was all he could get his hands on at first, but guitar was always an awkward fit for Ron. He started spending Sundays at the brothers' parents' home in Clapham Junction where he could use their piano. Ron cocoons himself this way for weeks, occasionally bringing home scraps of lyrics for Russell to accompany him vocally. As history shows, this was a creative purple patch for Ron, and within a few weeks, he would write a full album's worth of material. He and Russell made simple, homemade recordings of songs like Marry Me, When I Take the Field Friday, I'm About to Burst, Alabama Right, and My Brains and Her Looks. Obviously, a majority of those titles uh, don't really um, ring a bell for, uh, for most of us today as Sparks fans. Ron recalled that with just the two of them on record, it sounded like a Simon and Garfunkel album. And then there was a song with the title Too Hot to Handle, which Ron didn't know what to do with, and anyway, thought it sounded too much like his earlier song, Simple Ballet. But he had written the song in A major, and it amused Ron to see Russell strangle his vocal cords to reach the requisite notes. Ron kept the song brewing, marinating in his head for weeks, eventually absorbing the old Hollywood western line, This town ain't big enough for both of us. Ron didn't finish the song in time to record it for he and Russell's demo tape, but he would come back to it soon. 
Ron and Russell presented their two-man set of demo recordings to Muff Winwood sometime in the summer of 1973. Winwood appreciated Ron's clever songwriting and catchy melodies. He was also impressed by Russell's ability to match Ron with octave-leaping vocals and, and delivering the lyrics in a way that somehow sounded like pop music. He was ready to pair the males up with a strong backing band and negotiated a generous contract for Sparks with John Hewlett. The rights to the songs they had yet to record would be initially owned by Island with rights reversion to Ron and Russell after 30 years. Today, as of 2019, by the way, all recordings Sparks made with Island are indeed owned by Ron and Russell's little Beethoven label. Muff Winwood and others at Island thought there was enough raw material with Ron and Russell to be a new, poppier, glamier Roxy music. True, their enthusiasm was tempered by some of the quirkier aspects of the Male Brothers. As a songwriter, Ron was wired in a way that rendered him seemingly incapable of composing a piece that didn't feature shifting time signatures and strange starts and stops. And this was not even to mention his geeky, uh, self-conscious lyrics. Also, would teenage girls in 1973-74 really pin up pictures of Ron Mayle, a face that screamed stranger danger? Meanwhile, luckily, Russell had the hair, the looks, the clothes, the uh, androgyny of the glam stars of the time. However, there was little that was seductive about his keening vocal delivery, which uh, opened up into a eunuch-like falsetto at times. Winwood reckoned that if the band rocked hard enough, the whole package would work. Hewlett placed an ad in Melody Maker seeking musicians. Simultaneously, he set about engineering an easier solution. Another one of his clients was the glam rock band Juke. They sounded good. Hell, Bowie was an admirer but they hadn't scored any hits. Hewlett's grand plan was to cannibalize the band by splitting off the singer and slotting in Ron and Russell in his place. Juke, the band members, demurred, but singer Chris Townsend, a former member of John's Children, offered to help the males audition new musicians. As it would happen, over the next couple of years, all of Juke minus Townsend would eventually join with Sparks, albeit briefly. Applicants who were ultimately passed over included Canadian drummer Warren Can, later of Ultravox, and American Sal Maida, a bassist who was a self-professed Sparks fan and later was a Roxy Music touring musician. Neither one of them made the cut for Sparks, uh, as the ad pointedly specified that only English musicians need apply. One Juke fan who also happened to come across the Melody Maker ad was 19-year-old Martin Gordon. Gordon was a classically trained bass player who admittedly had a poor grasp of the pop music scene of the time, but he was eager all the same to join a rock band. He was working full-time as a technical writer and kept a phone at his workspace specifically to make and receive calls for band auditions. When Gordon showed up at Hewlett's house, along with another friend who was trying out for the drummer's role, he was a few hours late. Now, it wasn't his fault. He misheard Ron's American-accented English as Guardstone Road instead of the actual Godstone Road. 
Gordon found Ron and Russell shy and aloof, although he was intrigued by Ron's desire to, quote, find the Lennon to his McCartney. Gordon was keen toward a collaborative uh, venture, and he left the audition feeling hopeful. Ron and Russell were impressed by Martin's enthusiasm and his skill on the bass, although Rob... Eh. Although Ron privately thought the long-haired Gordon looked too hippie for his taste and was not yet convinced. Image, remember, was at or near the top of the list for Ron and Russell. Hewlett eventually invited Gordon for callbacks of a sort, although not for Gordon's drummer friend. This time, Ron and Russell were joined by Juke members Chris Townsend on drums and Trevor White on guitar. They rehearsed their so-called Girl trilogy of songs. That's Wonder Girl, I Like Girls, and Girl from Germany. They were impressed by Gordon's ease with those songs, and they liked his new shorter haircut. Ron anointed Gordon the newest member of Sparks and slid him a 10-pound note to cover travel expenses for the next time he came down from Hitchin, Hertfordshire. On September 22 and September 23, 1973, Martin Gordon joined the males at Island Studios along with two stand-in musicians on guitar and drums. They were tasked with recording four new demos over those two days. The songs were Barbecuity, Marry Me, in my family, and a new take of I Like Girls. The recording sounded good, but auditions continued for two more permanent band members. On a day when Sparks were auditioning guitarists, an eager young fan showed up. Not to audition, just to watch. His name was Derek Pace, and he was eager to make up for his disappointment back in January when he showed up to uh, Sparks' no-show show at the Marquee. They had canceled. Ron and Russell probably felt embarrassed sympathy for this young man. No doubt they enjoyed the attention, too. They let the kid in, and for all the auditioning guitarists knew, he was Sparks' tea or coffee boy. Derek later relayed meeting Adrian Fisher, a lanky, dark-haired young man. Fisher sat with his guitar case perched against the wall, patiently waiting his turn to audition for the demanding male brothers. The two of them sat outside the rehearsal room while an unfortunate applicant failed to keep pace with whippings and apologies and walked out with his guitar case pointing down to the floor, looking dejected. Recalled pace. A few minutes later, Russell emerged. Has he gone? And then he asked whether the others had heard anything. Because if you can't play any better than that, will you go now? Adrian Fisher was next up. And he got the part. Remarked John Hewlett, Adrian slayed them all. He was the best. He was the business. He was one of the greatest guitarists I've ever heard. A fucking brilliant player. Fisher later said that he saw his role in the band as someone who would, quote, butch things up a bit and get a blues lick in everything. Now, recall that Ron bemused that uh, one of the reasons Sparks hadn't caught on back home in the States was that, yeah, the band was loud, but their sound lacked balls. Having Adrian Fisher as their axe man would change that equation. He also had the looks. Beyond uh, being an accomplished musician, he fit the aesthetic requirements that Ron and Russell specified in their ad, which pretty much boiled down to no bulges, no beards. Yes, R&R basically wrote, no fatties, in a classified ad. 
So beyond the looks and the licks, Fisher, young though he was, uh, also had the most uh, experience in the music business out of any member of Sparks up to that point. Very wisely, as it turns out, he refused to, to sign any contract before consulting his lawyer. Finally, Sparks needed a solid drummer. Now, this is again where my two major biographical sources diverge. Uh, according to the David Thompson book, drummer Dinky Diamond was the next and final member to audition and join. According to Islia, Dinky came before Fisher. Obviously, historians will be debating this point until the end of time, so I'm just going to let that particular mystery be. Um, but let's take a look at Dinky Diamond, shall we? Norman Dinky Diamond was from Aldershot, a short drive southwest of London. He had played in various local bands, although lately he had been a fixture of the German cabaret circuit. That credential must have piqued Ron and Russell's interests, as their last album often sounded like German cabaret music. The self-taught Dinky was heavily influenced by jazz drumming, although the rest of the band could immediately see that he could play in any genre he wanted with ease and finesse. He was the perfect combination of Ringo Starr and Keith Moon. That's what they were looking for. The male brothers offered Dinky the job, he enthusiastically accepted, and Sparks Mark II was official. The five band members wasted no time and booked the Island Records studio in Clapham Junction for the following week. This was when the three new recruits became quickly familiar with the internal culture of Sparks, the band, and Sparks, the aspiring media entity. While they were immediately impressed by the new songs, they were a bit chilled by Ron and Russell's cut-the-bullshit professional demeanor. Martin Gordon later joked, Rehearsal would begin with elaborate greeting rituals. Arms would be thrown around each other's shoulders. Inquiries about the health of one's nearest and dearest would be made. Oh, hang on. That's another group. Sorry. As countless members of Sparks past and present would experience, Ron and Russell weren't terribly interested in making friends or letting anyone into their exclusive internal lives. They also enforced some seemingly arbitrary rules, such as discouraging players to make eye contact with one another when anticipating musical cues. It also didn't take long for the other three to realize that Sparks was not a democratic entity. Ron had full authorship of and final say on the songs, although he would usually consider Russell's input. Russell, by the way had a tendency to lapse into a faux British accent at times during rehearsal, which the three native Britons found alternatingly hilarious and embarrassing. The three English players would soon also witness firsthand Ron and Russell's delight in trolling the music press with completely fabricated stories about themselves. It was news to Fisher, Dinky, and Gordon when they read that the males discovered the three of them playing together at a party thrown by the brothers' good friends, the Kennedys. Yes, those Kennedys. Helpfully, Ron and Russell provided sheet music for the band to refer to during rehearsals, which turned out to be a godsend. Ron's new compositions rarely followed the pop song formula of verse-chorus-verse. These songs, with their... Quirky arrangements, to say the least, were just going to have to be memorized. 
Some of the new material was challenging to assemble in rehearsals, such as Lost and Found and Equator, which, according to Martin Gordon, quote, seemed to go on forever. But The Real Beast was a song that was originally titled Too Hot to Handle, but which was now This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us. Adrian Fisher had a hell of a time translating Ron's chords, written for keyboards, to his guitar. Dinky found he was frequently shifting between a 4-4 and a 3-4 beat, and it got just way more complicated than that. In short, all of the players were challenged by the material that would soon become the Kimono My House album, but it was a rewarding challenge, and each of the five band members believed in and were enthused by the songs. There was a shared sense that they were creating something special and distinct and very, very good. Sparks' manager John Hewlett was absolutely juiced about how the new band sounded, whereas he was originally more measured in his support of Ron and Russell since he had seen them more as fussy performance artists than as a real band, he now agreed they finally rocked. Ron's songs had tight melodies, Martin's bass brought some deep R&B groove, Adrian's guitar shredded, Dinky's drums were tight and propulsive, and Russell's voice was more commanding than ever before. Hewlett and Winwood had a recording contract, drafted and signed, and Hewlett set about getting Ron and Russell into the British Musicians Union, which, by the way, was not a very easy task. Soon, Sparks had a full album worth of demos, which they took to Muff Winwood in search of a producer. Winwood's jaw dropped when he heard the new recordings. He initially tried to recruit Jeff Lynn of Island's own Electric Light Orchestra to produce the final record, but Lynn and his band were really on a roll in late 1973, so he had to turn Winwood down. It didn't take much convincing to have Muff Winwood produce the new Sparks album himself, even if it meant he'd be spreading himself thin. Winwood enlisted a pair of crackerjack engineers and scheduled the new sessions to begin on November 22, 1973. That date, incidentally, would also be the day Ron and Russell's countrymen back home grimly commemorated the 10th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Meanwhile, impeachment hearings had just begun against then-current President Richard Nixon. The USA seemed a world away, and Ron and Russell couldn't have been more pleased. Hasta mañana, monsieur! Happy Christmas, humans. This is Computer Girl from the song Computer Girl. I have uncovered copies of the 1973 demos Ron and Russell recorded as a duo. Stay tuned for snack-sized snippets of the song's leisure time. Windy day. When I take the field on Friday. And my brains and her looks. Consume them and be nourished, carbon-based creatures. be doxes so pack up your bags sis doctors advise nothing more than nothing more i don't like flora i don't like fauna but it's a change from the battles and the gore still i hope a more constructive use of leisure time oh for some excitement 
mint Like the times we had around the March no line That was entertainment But allies beat Axis So pack up your bags, sis Doctors advise nothing more than nothing more Slip and slide, it's Glacier Day. Glaciers meet and soak up rays and take walks around the world. Glaciers like the world, just like big white boys and girls. It's Glacier Day. Artistic in the way they can change the world to red and change the red to gray. See the world turn red and gray. It's fire day, it's glacier day. One, two, three, four. On every stern play that I will make When I visit it for one Friday night's home away But thoughts of bottoms have to wait Till post-game social tease And then I'll ask the coach if it's okay You just wink and walk away When I take the field on Friday I'm gonna have it my way I'm a Yankee next to see That's so hard to be Indeed, that is so very hard to be. I'll beat the great and the great too, and beat the in between until there's no one left to beat, and then I'll beat 'em for a second time. When I'm forced to hit the turf, it's usually okay. I get the sympathetic silence resurrected every day. When I take the field on Friday, I'm gonna have it my way. I'm a Yankee next to see. That's so hard to be. Indeed, that is so very hard to be. Workmen muddled on through the early morning dawn till the road was clear and we. Passed on through. Genevieve glanced back at their bronzed and muscled backs, and I suppose that was a natural thing to do. I suppose, but she don't do nothing without my approval. My brains and her looks tonight. God has limits too. He ain't young like me or you. So you need someone who really understands. And I understand. And she leaves it in my hands. I was first to see in her what others see. Now they see. 
But she don't do nothing without my approval My brain's in her looks tonight Here she is, let's give a rousing welcoming Welcome her tonight Hey Hey, it's Christian Hi, you there <laughs> Right now, I'm in the Dominican Republic Oh, no kidding. Like, you, you have a home out there, or you guys are just out there for, for, for a vacay? Uh, well, anyway, thanks so much, you know, for, uh, for agreeing uh, to do this uh, interview. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to get a chance to, you know, pick your brain about uh, mostly stuff uh, sparks, you know, around those, those first uh, couple of years. Uh, in, in sure. LA. And uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks so much. And of course, I, I sent you those questions there. It was pretty exhaustive, I understand. But, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't intend on, on, you know, getting, getting to all of them. But anyway, uh, so I just wanted to start, uh-huh. out, start out with, you know, with what you're doing right now. And because I know you've revived uh, the electric prunes, uh, so are, are you guys active in the moment do you have any tour dates set up any any uh recording sessions um well we're we're um we're trying to work something out with the blues and the goos and uh and the band that is, is the seeds now i think is is the other band mm-hmm. um and they're put, they're putting some tour tour dates together i don't know you know it's really hard to get out of this the uh, relax mode. Yeah, man, I'm sure <laughs> if I were there most of my days, yeah, yeah in the in you know the Dominican Republic, it would be hard to get me motivated to do much more than you know make a mai tai or a margarita. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so I, I I have to confess. So you know I'm uh, I'm 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 new to to the the electric prunes, and so you know I've been kind of doing some. some some homework and really kind of getting into uh, what what you guys did originally in the um, you know in the uh, in the mid '60s, and it's it's uh-huh. yeah, I mean it's it's really captivating stuff. I mean, I keep thinking you know like 1967 was when you guys released your first album, you know, around the the summer of love, right? And you know, you, Strawberry right. Alarm Clock was one of your uh, you know, was, uh, one of, um, in your cohort there. Um, and, 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 and I'm just, uh, just wondering, you know, if that was, uh, because when I, when I listened to that first album, especially, I mean, you know, you, there, there's stuff that's similar to the psychedelic stuff that was happening around that time, but you guys seemed darker and, um, well, um, weirder. <laughs> I don't you agree. <laughs> <clears throat> we actually that well that was actually something we were shooting for is to try to make it different. You know, I was like the stuff in the fifties that was different. And uh, uh when, when we came to the recording part we decided we wanted to make it uh, you know, a little sinister. Yeah. And uh and 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 we wanted it to have some wobble, you know, there's a lot of tremolo in there and yes. stuff that shakes it around and yeah, uh, I always thought that was the coolest part of Elvis and Gene Vincent and all those people was that was that shaking, you know? Yeah, the tremolo comes through 
And um, they're also, you, you, you do a lot of stuff in the studio, it sounds like. There are a lot of effects. There's a lot of stuff you're doing with pedals and, and stuff. I, I guess that probably wasn't, I mean, I don't know how common at the time it was, but it definitely comes through in, that, in those uh, early recordings. There, there weren't any pedals then for the oh, most no? part. There was, we had, we had one of the first uh, um, uh, early fuzz tones, but there weren't, you had uh, what was on the amp, you know, if, that's why you'd buy a Fender, so you could get reverb and tremolo and, uh, you know, those echo effects and things like that. But there weren't a whole lot of pedals and stuff that provided that that uh, kind of thing. That was the beginning of all that. Around, you know, around the 60s, 65 and 66. Yeah, I mean, you guys there. were kind of right there on the edge of all that kind of studio experience. Yes. Kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, right. That's right. It was the the era of that. So I know that um, your time initially in in the prunes wasn't wasn't that long lived, right? Like uh, you you you, know, you stuck around with the band for maybe a, a couple of years before before leaving. Sixty five to sixty eight. Okay, I left. I left in sixty eight. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a long time for a rock and roll band. You know, well, not a long time days. to be employed. Yeah, everybody was swapping around, and uh, and we weren't. We, we purposely stayed out of the mix. You know, we didn't hang out in Hollywood, and we didn't. We really didn't hang out with a lot of other bands. Uh, we we sort of kept separate from it so that we wouldn't sound like they did. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting was I was kind of reading about you know some of the uh, the touring schedule that you guys had and I, I don't know if this is during the era that you were involved with but uh you guys either opened for the who at one point or asked to play longer because the who wasn't ready or it huh. trashed the stage or something does that ring a bell <laughs> we played the uh, we played the grand the grandy ballroom with them and uh uh we were only supposed to do one set, and they came to us, I guess, while they were playing or after they were playing or something, and said, will you uh, will you go play another set? And, of course, the stage is in shambles, you know, with that hoolies up there. Right. And uh, so I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And then they said, I don't know what it was. It was like four thousand dollars or something if you did that okay oh yeah that's what i read <laughs> yes yeah fourth yeah i yeah i read that the other day that's that's fucking fantastic it was like four grand and we said sure we'll do it that's hard i mean so i mean you guys were rubbing noses with like you know with the the rock uh elite at the time and you were doing shit in in europe as as well Right, and that was one of the things because everybody didn't go to Europe. You know, you had to trade back at that time. Uh, a band from Europe had to come to America to trade for, for a band that went over there. And our our manager managed Donovan in America, mm -hmm. and so he brought Donovan to California, and uh, and we went with Mems with the Beatles Company to um, to England. So we felt kind of privileged because everybody didn't go over there, you know. Yeah, no, no, no kidding. Um, and you know, this is um, auspiciously. The, the, I'm going to pivot into Sparks now because you were talking about. Oh sure, okay. You know, going over, you know, going over to uh, 
uh, to, to England and Europe. And of course, that's something that that you know Sparks did uh, near the end of well, well, I guess you know when they were just starting to tour Woofer. Um, but I just well, when you left the band, the Electric Prunes, and you went directly into production. Am I right? Right. And, um, yeah, I, I started engineering albums and then I got involved and hooked up with Todd, Todd Rundgren. Right. And, uh, I did, we did a lot of them. We had five, four or five albums together and we did, this, you know, some, uh, James Cotton blues band and some other projects together. So what was and that? that's sort of how I got involved as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, well, first off, I mean, I, I, I guess I didn't realize you had done so much with Todd. It was, but what, what, what was that like? Was that like a genuine partnership or was his records and you were just kind of at the boards? You know, uh, no, it was a partnership for sure because Todd was a young guy then. He wasn't that experienced. Uh, and, uh, uh, I, at that time I was working with Van Dyke Parks and I think he liked, uh, Van Dyke and I did some stuff with Ry Cooter. So he liked those guys and, uh, if I could work with them, I could sure work with him because he was, they were, they had done that first album and were looking to do the second, the second album, which ended up being the second and third. And I did, uh, Naz, Naz and Naz three. And then we did Runt with Hunt and Tony Sales. And I didn't realize the Sales anything. brothers were on that. Uh, that's Todd and the, and, and the two brothers all through that. Oh, and then they, no they came and played uh, Utopia. Wow. Okay. I'm glad I learned that because they, I, they, yeah. Uh, well, it's a whole other story, but I mean, they're part of the reason why I, I love Iggy Pop so much. Um, but, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, so mm-hmm. how did you, because I know you were working with Bearsville and I guess working with Todd when you came across that initial half Nelson demo record and how, what, what was that discovery like? How, and when did that happen? Well, uh, actually it didn't happen because Todd came to me and said, Christine likes this group. (laughs) They're going to be playing a, a showcase out in the Valley. Miss Christine of the GTOs. Right. Uh, and the, you're going to be doing, uh, they'll do a showcase for us out in the valley. So my, I took, took my wife and Todd took, uh, Christine and, um, uh, was it Christine? I'm not sure who it was. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, we my went out and listened to yes. their little. <laughs> Hopefully that's correct. Yeah. Pardon me? I said my, okay. my, my sources, since I'm, and I, I've been a real nerd about this, and I've been you know, doing my research. So yeah, it, it, it all points toward Miss Christine, yeah, being there with you guys. Yeah. And they were uh, uh, rehearsing in a doggy bed factory, um, and so we had to go. I think it was like nine or ten o'clock at night, and then they ran through a set for us. And um, I thought they were kind of cool, and uh, my wife thought the guy that Russ was cute. So she thought that was a good reason to. She said, "Guy, you got to do something with him." <laughs> yeah. So we did. We did that first album. So I mean, what was that experience like? Because I know that you know when they had you know when they had that demo 
release. First of all, I guess it was pretty unusual in those days to just go into, you know, to do a DIY kind of album recording thing without being signed up to a label, and yet they self-funded it and did it. But I, I'm sure, you know, listening to it, you're like, well, these guys don't even really have a rhythm section on most of this. I mean, did you ever, did you feel like, are these guys up to the task of cutting a real album? Well, you know, I'd heard some things uh, recorded by them, not that uh, not that whole demo. That sort of surprised me afterwards, years later, to find out about it. I heard Roger and some, a few other things that they had made attempts on. And, uh, yeah, they uh, they seemed so dedicated to their sound. You know, their whole, uh, the whole idea of the band, even the way they dressed and everything, they were, they were into it. So that's what it takes. You know, if you're going to do something, you got to be into it. Right. And, uh, Todd said, you want to do this thing? And I said, sure. I liked it. And we're good. So were you, were you pretty, uh, did you have a pretty, um, were you pretty involved in the, cause I know you were, you were an engineer on that first album. So were uh-huh. you there in the studio pretty much? pretty much most of the time when they were recording those tracks for that first Half Nelson album? Yeah, everything, yeah. And that's, Todd and I did a lot of albums together, so we had a a natural sort of way of working. He could leave and I could be there doing something or whatever, and he would know that I knew what he wanted. He knew that I knew what I wanted. So we had a good relationship in in the production. And then I think he got bad finger or something is the reason I ended up even producing the second album because he, he had to do something else. And um, so they asked if I did, if I wanted to do the album with them. And so, sure, why not? Yeah, Essentially, I was doing it anyway. <laughs> right, yeah, that's, I was going to say that. I mean, it sounds like, especially uh, during the latter parts of the recording of, of Half Nelson, I, I guess, did did you find that you were you know, taking on like a de facto kind of production role more and more? Because I know, I know Todd was, you know, he was pulled in a lot of different directions during that, that right. first album. Well, it's kind of that way. It's kind of that way anyway, doing a record, you know? I mean, I think everybody contributes what they do. Um, I don't think that anybody draws lines or says, you know, or, or is really in charge. That's kind of the thing I liked about the record business. It wasn't like, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so stiff as an employment situation. So one thing I've always wanted to know about is what was it like working under guys like Albert Grossman and Roy Silver? Because it seemed like they didn't really get what Sparks was about and wasn't really sure what you guys were doing. Did they just trust you? <laughs> no, I, I liked Albert. I got along well with Albert. And uh, the only thing he was ever, and he, he was smart, you know. He knew that ba- the band had something. I don't know whether he exactly understood it, but he was smart enough to know that they had something. Um, and the only thing we ever had uh, issues about was Russell's voice being out in front. He, he, he felt that the band had to have the lyrics identified, or it, or it you know didn't mean much. Um, well, and I so, felt the same way. But yeah, 
Russell's a lot of what you couldn't understand about Russell was his enunciation. It was it wasn't the level or the you know function of level. It was the way he was saying certain words. Well, even back then, he was kind of putting on like a a fake British or some kind of weird European accent on a lot of those. Exactly. It was like Catherine would Hepburn. Pin, would, pin wisdom, would pin wisdom take a backseat to a girl <laughs> when, this, when you're that afraid? I mean, that to me is like, I don't know. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to hear it. And Albert was always adamant about that. He get all, he called me in the middle of mentioning and say, "Make sure you get his voice out." <laughs> so okay, when the reins were handed over to you to produce Woofer, what what were some of the things that you set out to do differently from what was done in that first album? I think I wanted to make it a little sexier, a more make a more of a group. And the first album sounded like a collection of songs to me, uh, but I didn't hear some of the glue that I expected for a group. Mm-hmm. And on the second album, some of the songs I thought were uh, nothing is sacred anymore, and some of the, you know, some of these songs sounded a little more like you could hear a band doing them, you know. So I guess I wanted to make it like the Electric Prunes. <laughs> yeah, actually, sounds like a band, know. right? Yeah, more bandy and, 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 and less uh, and less esoteric. Right, I mean, and it does come through for sure. And when when I listen to it, and I I hear more of that groove aspect. It's it's a slinkier, it's sexier, and like I I'm I'm hearing it more from like Harley and Jim Mankey really kind of strutting their stuff. Where I feel like they were a little more mannered in that first album, and I'm just. I'm wondering what what kinds of elements you think made that album sounds. It's a broad question. I apologize, but like, what kinds of things made that second album sound slinkier and sexier and darker than that first one? God, I don't know. It's a know. big question. Uh, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Each song is so different, you know. But that, but I thought that the, the the songs that they presented on the second album were not quite so intellectual. They were a little Angus Desire. I mean, some some of the things were were just slinkier. Yeah. And and it lent itself to uh, to to sounding more more band esque and less, uh, except for Here Comes Bob, which. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. We had a string quartet on it. That is a real Ron and Russell thing right there that just that keeps that that the uh, sonic element keeps popping up uh at, you know uh, as the years go on. How did that go down because that was a string quartet, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think I may have been I think we may have used a couple of extra violas or something. I'm not sure. I saw a picture of it once, actually. Were you there uh, when those people... Someone that I knew. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. We did it at Crystal Sound, and it was probably the only outboard thing. Most of the things that we did, we did at ID Sound and and mixing some things at Wally Hyders. But uh, for the most part, it was uh, that was the only outside element was those the string quartet and the Whitney organ 
Oh yeah. The, uh, the, the studio, studio out there in Glendale, it has that enormous, the Beach Boys used to use it, that enormous pipe organ. Oh, the Beach Boys used it. Okay. And I use that on Beaver Lindy as far as I use it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, okay. So that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Beaver Lindy is a great example of where you really get to hear some of the elements, musical elements that you didn't hear in the Half Nelson. And specifically, I'm talking about Harley's drums. Like, Harley yeah. really, he's got this big, fucking thunderous drum sound uh, on, on Beaver Lindy that I, I think really helps pull that. Uh, song in, into a you know a, a, a different level. Was that uh, you know w- was that something that you were thinking about specifically in a lot of those songs, or that song specifically is is tweaking the sound of Harley's drums? Well, I think on the first album, I think the first song I did with them was High C. Uh, on the, I think that's on the first album. Yeah. And, and in that, I blew up the drums and made them real big and, you know, yes. and, and scary. And, uh, I thought, uh, that, that was a great thing for him because he could, he can play aggressive. That's his whole thing. He can sound excited on the drums. Right. And, uh, when we got down to Be Real Lindy, uh, <clears throat> that and a couple of other things on there, he, he let it go. He, I, th- I thought he felt freer on the second album than in the first album. Yeah, it, it comes across. So when uh, you know when when the when the album is, is cut and everything, you know, I, I know a lot of people had really high hopes for it. Obviously, it didn't quite you know it, it it didn't pan out the way you know every every everyone had hoped. Um, I mean, was there what what I don't know what 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 were you thinking slash hoping the impact you know would be when it was released, that maybe, you know, at least it, it would catch fire regionally. You know, maybe at least on the West Coast, people would get into it. I know they played at the Whiskey a lot. Did it? I said, for me, I went out on the end of the diving board because after doing the two albums with them, when I finished that Wolfer album, I told my wife, if this album doesn't happen somewhere and we don't get some kind of excitement going with it, I'm not going to do this anymore because I don't know what I'm doing. I think this is what I think rock and roll is. Yeah. It's different. It's a, you know, it's noisy and it's different. And, and, and it's, and this, this, the lyrics all make sense. So, uh, actually nothing happened and I did what I said I was going to do. I went and and started doing something else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's okay. Maybe you're not that good. If you, if, if you can't pitch the game anymore, maybe you should go do something else. Well, hey, well, you know, there's that. But on the other hand, you know, all these years later, you know, that that's an album that means means a lot to a lot of people, my, my, myself included. And I'm really glad that you, know, that you had such a heavy hand in that. Uh, <laughs> hashtag me too. Hashtag I me still too. love every there song. <laughs> Find another use for me too. I know every one of the lyrics. I know you know you can do. I can do every line from that thing, and I don't know why it just bored itself into my brain. It's easy to and, do, um, <laughs> but for you especially, and I know a couple know? of other people it's that way too. <laughs> oh man, that's well, they're clever. 
Uh, I, I also wanted to ask you, because in, in those early days uh, uh, of Sparks, obviously Ron, Russ, you know, were heavy hitters, but, but Earl was uh, as well. I know he, he did a lot of uh, songwriting, and I, and I know that he, um, uh, he, he, you know, he, he, he liked to play the decks, and, and he, was, he was good at it. So uh, I'm I'm curious when you were producing, especially Woofer, which of those guys wanted to have more of a hand in the production? Was there ever like times when they were stepping on your toes or overriding decisions or just trying to influence things? And who? <laughs> <laughs> I had a great relationship with Ron and Russ. Earl and I, every once in a while, would argue about guitar sounds. He was tended to get things kind of nashy and uh, uh, a little on the trash side, and I thought he could have done things a little cleaner. Mm-hmm. But um, and Jim Mankey, he just Jim went along with everything. I never had a band that was so easy to work with. You never got in a fight. You never had a. Di- I had one one thing I would have done differently was. Uh, Something in, uh, I don't remember what it was. One of the songs I, I wanted to put an effect in. And that was the only thing they said, no, nah, maybe not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have any, I never had a disagreement about sound or, or levels or placement or anything like that with them. They were, they were really good. They, they listened. How about, were there any songs, especially on the Woofer album, where they were like stuck? They're like, "Hey, this isn't working, James. You know, can you help us out with this?" Was there anything that changed substantially from when they first came into the studio to record it, and then the way it came out? Okay, I'll, t- I'll tell you. We had two things. The first thing was we were doing "Beaver or Windy," and somebody said, "God, we need an accordion." Does anybody know who an accordion player is? Uh-huh. And my my bass player, Mark Tulin's brother, played the accordion, and he was like 14 years old. So he came from the valley out to Hollywood. Did he have to have his <laughs> parents drive him? Session. <laughs> I don't know who brought him, but he came out and and, uh, and played on Beaver O' Lindy. And then in another one, we were, we were recording uh, Batteries Not Included, the little promo mm-hmm. thing. And somebody said, we need a kid. we got to find a kid. And Earl went out on the street in Hollywood and found a kid and his mother to come in. And the kid did the a little line. I don't remember what the line was, but he did it perfectly. And uh, I think we did a hundred bucks or something. But that, those, that's the only things we got stuck on that we didn't have uh, a kid and a beaver. I mean, a, an accordion. Oh, man. Uh, so, well, that's most of what I've got for, for Woofer there, which by the way is like in my top, at least five favorite Sparks albums. I mean, I've, I've, you know, listened to all their stuff since, but that, that's one that's always stuck with me. So I've always wondered since, you know, that was the end of your relationship professionally with Sparks, you know, a couple of years later, they moved to England. And they, you know, come out with their, you know, with those three albums they made made for Island. Did did it surprise you the new sound that they had? What did you think of it? 
Um, I'll be honest with you. I hadn't heard from Sparks until Perfume. That, that, no what is shit, that album? really? The Rabbits. The Rabbits album. Wow. And I hadn't heard. I'd seen, I'd seen all those clever covers in the record yeah. store, the Demona My House and, uh, and the, the, hand, the uh, Speedboat shot and yeah. all those shots. But I never heard any of that music. When I left music, I left it. I didn't want to hear anything from anybody. Oh, man. That must have been um, like opening up a time capsule when you finally dove into all that stuff. That's... Yeah. And I, and I like the new stuff. I like a lot of it. It's wow. a little more Giorgio Moroder than, than well, my taste. But they, they did, know. yeah, definitely literally go that route for a, for a little while there. So, as you said, of course, you, you left the scene for a while, um, for a long while, right? But did you, um, I mean, were you ever messing around with music? Did you, were you ever playing just for fun or recording just for fun or helping out, you know, friends on their records? You know, I went into uh, producing TV stuff, uh, commercials and TV shows and stuff, so I didn't have any time, you know, that was, and I was always in a studio in that situation anyway, but um, uh, it was doing that at that time, then doing video and doing uh, sound for it and stuff, that I just lost interest in doing band things, they were, they just seemed like so much trouble, and and then nobody likes it. <laughs> <laughs> no respect. But then eventually you did come back. No, I, I mean, and I, and I understand. You have to have your finger on the pulse of, the, of what's going on to yeah. be able to do that stuff. Yeah, when you don't, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did read, you know, one of my books here I've been reading uh, that uh, that you felt like you had lost your ability to spot a hit after Woofer didn't catch fire, which uh, I I would have thought Woofer would have been a hit myself back then. I'm quite sure. Well, that's how I felt. I thought if something out of here doesn't pop out and make somebody go, hey, this is an unusual group, let's listen to them. And you know what? Albert felt that way, too. He thought they were clever. Mm -hmm. He liked the way they sounded. so uh, uh, it just didn't happen, and you know, now look, now the justification all these years later, they're out there doing it again. So. Sure. Oh yeah, they're they're good. Yeah, obviously still at it. So w- when did you decide to uh, get the prunes back together? How did that go? Um, so a guy I knew at, at, at Warner Brothers, David Katz Nelson, got a hold of me, and he said, "You know, I'd like to do a compilation of your." records or whatever from the 60s i couldn't believe anybody wanted to do that but i said okay so i got together with mark and we went in the studio with bill Englod and we remixed those those old songs and in working in the studio we mark and i decided this was fun i had a little little place up in santa barbara and uh we decided to start doing it again and then Stephen van zandt gave me a phone call and said I- Steven I dare Van you to come out. Yeah, I said I already know who Stephen Van Zandt was. To be honest with you. So look, I'm just going to tell you. So, so I'm 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 a, I'm kind of a young guy. I'm 40. So like Stephen Van Zandt, when I hear his name, of course, I'm I'm thinking about the Sopranos. Like that's 
that's where I, right. I know him from. And then it was just, you know, after that, you know, I, I, you know, had heard that he played with the E Street band and all that sort of stuff. And he's a, just a motherfucker guitarist. Anyway. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I, but this guy calls me on the phone. He says, I'll tell you what, I dare you to get your band together and play my cave stop event next year at something or other. And so, was it cave stop? Uh, okay. In, in Brooklyn or somewhere. So I said, okay. And, uh, we worked it out and we actually went there and played. And that was a great uh, relationship with him. He did a lot of very nice things for us. He, um, uh, he was a cool guy. Very cool. And you guys, I mean, you've been pretty active with the prunes, or at least on and off uh, since then. I know you've released we, a few records. That's what, right. We probably released we released more than when we were together before. We probably I had a little studio so we could do it all ourselves, and we've done about oh, I don't know six albums or something like that. Jesus. And uh, and we've gone to Europe a few times, and Tokyo, and some other places, and. Uh, uh, it's been fun playing, but it's few and far between. You know, I mean, this is an old band. It's not. Uh, it's not uh, what's going on now. True, but it's also you know the internet age. So I mean, have you been surprised to see that there are a lot of people and maybe a lot of younger people that know about you that you didn't expect they would? Yeah, that's the biggest surprise. And we played a gig in Kent, in, Kent, in the UK. And there were, I couldn't believe it. There were people from all over. And what it was was the dad was bringing the son to, to listen to his music, you know? And I thought, I didn't listen to the music my dad listened to. But here's all these pairs of people from Israel and from Britain and Scotland. And they're there with their boy. Now, they used to listen to the electric prunes, and now their boy listens to it. So it was a real shock. I didn't know anybody even knew about this stuff. And you got Harley involved, at least for for one of those reunions, didn't you, Harley Harley Feinstein? I sure did. I sure did. We did on our feedback album. There were a couple of songs, and I knew that I found out that Harley was still around playing and stuff. And uh, so I called him and said, "Hey." I need just exactly your kind of drumming. So there's Hello Out There and Circus Freak, two songs I had that uh, uh, we didn't know who could play drums on them, and he did. He, he played very well. Well, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, as I told you, and he, he he's told me he had a really, really cool experience doing that. Um, let's see. What do I have here, then? So... I thought it kind of perked him up too, yeah. you know, to come up to my place and hang out. And I, th- I thought it was a good, it was a good measure. Very good. Well, I know he's, yeah, and he's, um, uh, c- certainly there must have been some kind of kismet because I know just over the last, you know, several years, you know, he started playing again. He's got his wife and uh, some other people in a, in a band and they're, they're playing out there on the, on, on the West Coast. So, um, well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here, uh, James, and I <laughs> thank you so. I cannot thank you so much for your time, man. I've gotten this. I've gotten so much great new information from you. Um, is there anything about your time since this is a Sparks podcast? Anything about your time 
working on those Sparks albums and working with Sparks that that you really like to you know relay to anyone listening. Well, what about your experience stands out the most? I think that the lyrical content in their songs is what's so powerful. And uh, I know rock and roll is supposed to be about the boogie feel and all that kind of stuff, but the, I think the lyrics in their stuff are just uh, over the top. I, I wish I wish people would give uh, give a listen to what is actually being said sometimes. Right. You know, I know their fans do, but I mean, I'm talking about if you're t- talking to somebody uninitiated, because back then, even when I get the demo of what I was doing and I play it for somebody, even people in the record business, they'd go, well, um, what is it? Or <laughs> What is it? Where <laughs> you know, was, does this slot in? What like, is it? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then yeah, they look at a picture didn't of sound like anything like, else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then... And then even McCartney picked up on him, you know? That's right. Yeah, he did. Uh, he had that video for his album in 1980. He played Ron. <laughs> yeah, and he played Ron. I forget the song now. Coming up. That's what yeah. it, was. it was. Coming up, yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. Man. Uh, well, again, James, hey, I, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I'm going to let you get back to enjoying the luxury of the island. Little jealous. Uh, I'll have okay. to get down there soon. <laughs> Thank you very much. You got it. Have a great night. <laughs>